This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Glitch Feminism, A Manifesto by Legacy Russell. Glitch Feminism is a vital new chapter in cyberfeminism, one that explores the relationship between gender, technology, and identity. In an urgent manifesto, Russell reveals the many ways that the glitch performs and transforms, how it refuses, throws shade, ghosts, encrypts, mobilizes, and survives. Developing the argument through memoir, art, and critical theory, Russell also looks at the work of contemporary artists who travel through the glitch in their work. Timely and provocative, glitch feminism shows how an error can be a revolution. Glitch Feminism, a Manifesto, by Legacy Russell, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Over a year into this pandemic, there are now multiple highly effective vaccines. People no longer have to die of COVID-19. It's a scientific breakthrough we should all be grateful for. But unfortunately, as has long been the case with vital medicines, the vaccine is not being distributed equitably, not even close. Rich countries are vaccinating one person every second, while many of the poorest nations have yet to administer a single shot. Some experts warn that 9 out of 10 people in poor countries may never be vaccinated at all. The United States is hoarding access to more doses than we could ever use. Pharmaceutical companies, though their research was funded by public money, are refusing to share the formulas and technology that would allow other countries to manufacture supplies of their own, all while charging poor countries through the nose. South Africa, for example, is paying two and a half times the per unit price that Oxford's AstraZeneca vaccine sells for to European countries. In response to this abysmal, straight-up evil situation, an international coalition of activists has called for a people's vaccine, free of intellectual property restrictions, and accessible to all, everywhere, on the grounds that no one is safe until everyone is safe. With the coronavirus rapidly mutating and becoming more transmissible and seemingly more lethal in some instances, it is imperative that the vaccine be released worldwide on the basis of need, not ability to pay. For people who have been working on access to medicines, the tragedy of the vaccine rollout now unfolding was utterly predictable. This week, my guest host, Astra Taylor, interviews Achal Prabala, the coordinator of Access IBSA, which campaigns for access to medicines in India, Brazil, and South Africa. This year, as part of his work to dismantle patent and intellectual property constraints on life-saving drugs, Prabala has written multiple articles and op-eds laying out the inhumane costs and deadly consequences of a profit-driven pharmaceutical industry, 
the pathologies of the current international trade regime, and the pitfalls of the philanthropic approach to vaccine distribution. I will link to some of those articles in the show notes. Billionaires, you will not be surprised to hear, will not save us. To overcome vaccine apartheid, we need to adopt an international approach, decommodify life-saving medicines, and invest in global public health. I will also link in the show notes to some groups working here in the U.S. and across the world to fight against global vaccine apartheid if you want to get involved, including Public Citizen, Prep for All, MSF, and the People's Vaccine Campaign. Before we get rolling, please do contribute what you can to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. Most podcasts get you to contribute by paywalling half of their episodes, which I totally get. But we have tried something different here, which is to paywall nothing so that everyone can listen regardless of your ability to pay, while asking those of you who can afford to contribute to voluntarily do so. And so far, remarkably, that has been working. So if you haven't yet and you can afford to contribute, please contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, please join the dig book club to participate in upcoming Zoom events with Astra Taylor, Paolo Garbaldo, and Sharice Burdenstelli. Do so by visiting thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book, hyphen club. Okay, here's Achal Prabala, who has been a public health activist for 18 years, starting in South Africa, where he worked for the country's largest trade union federation. He now lives in India and runs the Access IBSA project, which campaigns for access to medicines in India, Brazil, and South Africa. In addition to research, advocacy, and writing, he is currently working on two things— access to coronavirus vaccines, and a documentary on the arc of the global movement for access to life-saving medicines, from AIDS in South Africa at the turn of the century to the pandemic. Achal Prabala, welcome to The Dig. Thank you, Astra. So in April of 2020, you wrote a very prescient op-ed for The Guardian entitled, We'll find a treatment for coronavirus, but drug companies will decide who gets it. In other words, the challenge isn't just the development of these vaccines, but the distribution. So I was wondering if we could begin with you setting the scene for us. As we all know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, but there's been this scientific breakthrough. Can you describe for me the scramble for vaccines, which some refer to as vaccine apartheid? So the United States, where I am, Britain and other wealthy countries are racing to vaccinate their populations. But I've read that as many as 90% of the population in dozens of poor countries could be forced to wait until 2022 or so for um, vaccinations at scale. And, you know, it's sitting here, I'm sitting in the United States and North Carolina, Americans lament having to wait until May. And so we'll look at, you know, as this interview goes on, why this rollout is so inequitable. But I just was wondering if you could begin by giving us a kind of lay of the land. In broad strokes, what does this rollout look like in Italy and Israel and where you are in India? 
Yeah, look, you know, there's a there's a funny piece of news uh, today that I, I saw uh, out of the corner of my eye, which is that a number of apes in the San Diego Zoo have been given an experimental veterinary uh, coronavirus vaccine. And, you know, I have nothing against apes, and I'm actually really glad that someone's working on that. Um, it is somewhat ironic, though, that they're getting this experimental vaccine while a majority of countries in the African continent, a majority of what are called low-income countries, have not dispensed a single vaccine dose as yet. And that's where we are today. Uh, you mentioned that piece uh, I wrote with my colleague Alan Tihon in uh, April of 2020. And that really seems like another era in this time uh, somehow. When we wrote that piece, there were a couple of really interesting movements that were coalescing with great promise, actually. And one of those was something called the COVID-19 Technology Access Pool, which we mentioned in that piece, it's a it's a way by which we thought countries and companies could get together to share vaccine technologies and treatment technologies because in April 2020, I think more people were looking at the prospect of treatments coming to market sooner than vaccines. There was a lot of talk about a particular drug, Remdesivir, which Gilead had just brought to market. The US FDA around that time had given emergency use authorization um, in the United States uh, for use of that drug. What we were looking at was a proposal by which we thought, as common sense would indicate, companies could collaborate and cooperate. So if they're working on a treatment that could be augmented by testing it with, let's say, another drug that another company was interested in doing, or if uh, vaccine manufacturers were working on the same platforms, for instance, and wanted to share the progress in trying different combinations of uh, science to inject into those vaccines to make them work, that there could be a platform that would enable all of that to happen. And so there were two reasons, I think, why we wanted this CTAP to work. One, to get uh, vaccines and treatments off the ground faster, but secondly, to allow them to be produced by anyone who would want to so that they could be made in as many different parts of the world as possible. And the alternative to that was what we knew at that time was a brutal, cruel, oppressive 20-year history of a denial of access to medicines, starting with AIDS in South Africa and Southern Africa in the late 1990s, so at the turn of the century moving to cancer treatments in India, moving to the denial of access to hepatitis C drugs in large parts of Eastern Europe and Brazil in around 2010. And then, sort of shockingly, for someone like me who's worked on access to medicines for so long, suddenly seeing problems with access to drugs for middle-class white people in some of the richest countries on earth. So there was is a huge problem with access to a crucial antiretroviral cocktail called PrEP, which essentially prevents or dramatically lowers your risk of contracting HIV, which is completely unaffordable in the United States. Insulin, again, unaffordable in the United States. A drug for cystic fibrosis, which was unaffordable for about five years in the United Kingdom until the problem was solved about two years ago after several children died and uh, huge amounts of activist pressure was applied. 
that's the history we knew. And so that's the history we wrote. And, and I think what we were trying to say at that time was that there are two alternatives. There's the alternative of doing business as we have been for the last 20 years, which is surely going to result in death and destruction because it has. I mean, there is no other way that system works out. When you have pharmaceutical monopolies that can operate in full force without any countervailing measures, the result has always been some kind of catastrophe. And the only difference is in the degree of catastrophe is whether it is solely affected poor people or whether it's affected all poor people and some uh, middle class people in rich countries. Right. And so let's dig into what it is looking at in this rollout now, because we are seeing even among rich countries, a kind of battle to get access to the vaccine. Right. And so we see a country like Israel, which I, I mentioned being able to pay twice as much as what I believe even the U.S. is paying and thus getting a kind of preferential treatment for, from Pfizer, which is uh, behind one of the vaccines. And then, you know, what is the situation like in India? So the way that the, 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 the entire world looks right now is that it's divided up into a couple of categories. So you have rich countries. So you have the U.S. and Europe uh, who are doing very differently in terms of the actual vaccine rollout. But that apart, what they have are a huge pre-orders of doses of uh, Western vaccines, typically. And they cornered those markets uh, way back in 2020. So this is not something that we're learning now. This is something that we knew ever since, I would say, about the third quarter of, of last year. Uh, the richest countries on earth from Canada, the United States, the European Union, Japan, Australia, and others bought these vaccines ahead of their development and also invested very heavily in their research and production. And those countries are now using the vaccines that they pre-ordered as they come to market. Again, some are doing better than others, but that's really more a question of how they've managed to place themselves in the queue, etc. And it's it's hard to see even the vaccine shortages in the United States, which are which are real, or the lack of vaccine supplies to uh, Europe, which has a much much lower vaccination rate. It is a problem. It's not as much of a problem as what's happening in the lowest income countries on earth, where there are no vaccines at all, literally at all. There haven't been any vaccines uh, until very recently. And now what's happening is that they're getting some vaccines in the lowest income countries on Earth through a very complicated mechanism called the COVAX facility, which we'll go into. But it's a tiny trickle. So what low income countries are getting are vaccines for less than 1% of their populations, typically. And they're getting that three whole months after the vaccine started rolling out in the United States. Then, in by the way, among those rich countries, of course, you have examples like Israel, where the route to vaccine access has been, as you said, simply paying more to get the vaccine and vaccinating everyone in the country as quickly as possible. The United Arab Emirates has not done very badly on that count either. But what the United Arab Emirates did is to buy vaccines from China from one particular supplier called Sinopharm, which is a state-owned company. And that actually is what a lot of countries in the middle are doing. You have anomalies like India, which is actually a huge vaccine production site because we have vaccine manufacturers who can produce in large volumes. And so two Western companies, AstraZeneca and Novavax, gave out huge contracts to one company in India called the Serum Institute to produce a billion doses for 92 poor countries uh, this year. And so we get a part of that. And so we're actually not doing that badly. My parents got vaccinated last week. 
And they're in, we're in actually a second phase of vaccination now where after healthcare workers, it's going to people who are over 60 or people who are over 45 and have comorbidities. So India is a sort of anomaly, but if you took India aside, all the other middle-income countries, right? And this is everybody from Brazil, Peru, Bolivia in Latin America uh, to Argentina to all the Arab countries, Egypt, Jordan, Tunisia, Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, many middle-income countries in Asia, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, almost a large part of Eastern Europe and some parts of Europe, Hungary, Serbia, Belarus. These countries are using vaccines from uh, China and Russia, two vaccines in particular from China, Sinovac and Sinopharm, and one vaccine from Russia, the Sputnik V vaccine. And their strategy is to having been locked out of Western vaccines to bypass them and to go to the vaccine manufacturers who are ready to talk to them. And that's where they're getting vaccines from. So what the lowest income countries have been doing to try to figure out a way out of this to get a reasonable degree of vaccines, because less than 1%, which is what essentially Western philanthropy is giving them, is, is much less than they expected. It's certainly less than what... Western philanthropic organizations said they would be able to do last year. And what they've been doing instead now is to get together with organizations like the African Union that represent a large number of low-income countries on the African continent who are then trying to negotiate their own deals. And so they've done a deal for 300 million doses of the Sputnik vaccine, which they'll get in May. And they're doing other smaller deals like that. That's the Russian vaccine. So it's a scramble it is. It's the scramble. I'm curious to hear your story, though, a bit. As you mentioned, you've been at this for 20 years, fighting for access to medicines. You know, and I think people, listeners of the dig, you know, have a sense that big pharma is bad. You know, in the United States, we hear a lot about insulin. We obviously have huge problems with our for-profit healthcare system, the lack of universal health insurance. But you know, so I'm, but I'm wondering, what is it that drew you so deeply into this fight? And can you just tell us a bit of your story before we go back uh, to the coronavirus? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, I, I was working as a as a journalist. I've worked once in my life as a journalist for about three months because it was the cheapest way uh, to live in the West Indies, in Guyana. And I came across this problem in 2002 where there were a large number of people who needed AIDS medication, antiretroviral drugs, and they simply couldn't afford it. It was a poor country, but it was also uh, saddled with another peculiar problem. It was a small country. When you're a country like Guyana with, with a million people uh, in total in the entire country, there's just very little visibility you have to negotiate you know, commercial purchases of antiretrovirals. And then there's also very little money that you have. And they had this unusual struggle to find ways to get uh, quality antiretroviral drugs. And it just struck me as an absurd problem because I had followed coverage of the fact that there were Indian companies at that time uh, who were making antiretroviral drugs at a very, very low cost. And that too had come about through a struggle. And I tried to put some of the pieces of that puzzle together. I followed some of the AIDS activists who were working on these issues at that time. And then when I went to study towards a master's degree, I spent all of my time thinking about this problem. 
And when I learned about what was happening in South Africa, when you look at the number of people in 2002 who needed antiretroviral drugs there, I mean, we're talking about a country, you know, where at one point, something like one in five adults uh, was HIV positive. Uh, Southern Africa had mushrooming rates of HIV infection that were nearly epidemic proportions, which meant that this was a problem that was affecting millions of people in that region. And just given the kinds of income that people had and that governments had in that region, it was simply impossible to spend what they needed to at that time, which was $10,000 per person per year, to buy these medicines. It would have literally bankrupted even the treasury of the government of South Africa, the, one of the richest countries in that region. And, and and people were literally dying. I mean, there were people who I followed who I was became so attached to, actually. And one of them was somebody called Zaki Ahmad, who started a, a, an organization called the Treatment Action Campaign. He was HIV positive. He was a former trade unionist, a former anti-apartheid uh, activist who briefly worked as a, a sex worker and then turned to gay rights, which in a very strange set of circumstances, there wasn't actually much to do around by the time 2002 came around because the South African constitution and then subsequent developments did such a good job that um, there just wasn't enough for gay rights activists to do at, at some point. Uh, on the way, he discovered that he was HIV positive, um, that he definitely couldn't afford the drugs himself. And then was offered these drugs through middle-class connections and people who lived overseas who he knew, but he rejected that and went on a, a strike, refused to take these antiretroviral drugs himself until the government of South Africa made it available to everyone, the millions of people in South Africa who all needed these drugs. And that actually was the fuel that drove this uh, campaign that he started called the Treatment Action Campaign, which was just the most inspiring, the most important thing in the world. I mean, I remember being holed up in basements in New Haven, um, trying to find any footage and film of, of of the treatment action campaign and Zaki and everything that was going on at that time. You know, Samantha Power, your uh, head of USAID, traveled to South Africa to write a long piece on him for The New Yorker, which... Um, one of the better things she's ever done. <laughs> maybe one of the best things she's ever done, I was just going to say. Uh, oh, definitely the best thing she's ever done, Yeah. Which actually was, I, I, you know, I remember that piece coming out. I remember being at a friend's home who had a subscription to The New Yorker and she got it. And we literally sort of read it, pushing each other's faces out of the way, uh, competing with each other to read every word of it, because it, it just seemed so crucial and so important. And it was actually a very hopeful piece, because what it ended with was that Zaki saw uh, light at the end of the tunnel and felt that they were winning their battle and plan to take antiretroviral drugs finally and live. Because what happens actually if you're HIV positive and you don't take antiretrovirals is that you die. I mean, this is what was happening in the United States uh, prior to 1996. This is you know, the kind of stuff that we've seen in films like A Normal Heart, uh, the play that Larry Kramer wrote that then became, uh, uh, I think it was on HBO, uh, you know, a major Hollywood film. This is the story uh, that my producing partner, David France, uh, chronicled in How to Survive a Plague, which is people dying because it was a plague. A plague is a disease of mass proportions that you cannot control and that you have no cure or treatment for. And this was exactly what was going to happen to Zaki or anyone else in that position in South Africa, 
except the difference being that it was happening almost 10 years later. So these drugs were there. The drugs had been found in 1996. There was no plague any longer, not in the United States at least, but simply because they were unaffordable, because the pharmaceutical companies who had brought them to market held these extremely lucrative and tightly controlled monopolies on them, they were not going to allow South Africans to get them. And that plague, which was so forcefully won by AIDS activists from ACT UP and a whole range of other brave and dedicated campaigners in the United States, it took a while for people to realize that it hadn't been won anywhere else in the world. And I lived in the middle of that, and it was incredibly surreal to see this thing that could allow you to live a completely normal life where AIDS or or being HIV positive would become like having diabetes, something incredibly normal that you could manage for the rest of your life, right? Which was not available at all, even though it existed, because no one could afford it. It really just, honestly, I just hard. I don't know how else to describe it except to say that it, it, it there seemed like no more important issue in the world, and and then I got into it to try to understand how I could do something about it, and I have, in one way or another, been doing something about it ever since that time. Achal, before we move on, could you tell me about prep though, because you mentioned it earlier in the interview, and it's the the next phase of the fight for access to AIDS medicine. Uh, For a long time, there was no way to uh, lower the risk of contracting HIV except through safer sex. You know, at first, HIV was incurable and untreatable, and people died. Then we found an effective treatment for it. The search for a vaccine remains elusive. And one of the greatest things that happened in the last few years is that people discovered that the same antiretrovirus that could treat uh, HIV could also prevent people from being infected with HIV. And that treatment in the United States is called Truvada. We call it PrEP. It costs $24,000 a year or $2,000 a month. In India, the the exact same treatment is available at a cost of $400 a year. So the price difference is really dramatic. And it's, of course, lower if you have insurance in the United States, but it's still a lot of money. And it's actually unaffordable to people who are even middle class, uh, which makes it um, egregious. But what actually makes it ironic and egregious is the fact that the the discovery, the science that created PrEP, it actually belongs mostly to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, which owns some of the monopolies, the patents that Gilead has asserted to keep this drug out of the reach of people in the United States, which is an incredibly absurd situation. And so, in fact, the Health and Human Services Department is actually suing Gilead uh, for uh, for price gouging and asserting its monopoly on PrEP because it feels that they don't actually own it. Well, it's the perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you, actually, which is, you know, it's kind of a foundation for the rest of this conversation. But why does becoming an activist fighting for access to medicines necessarily entail becoming well-versed in patent and intellectual property law, right? So you already were there. The problem is who holds the patents, you know? So, and and did you know that going into this? Because you are incredibly knowledgeable about the, I don't know how we should describe it, the esoteric Byzantine details of IP trade deals. And um, did you know that this is what you were getting into? 
I did not actually, and honestly, had I known, I might not have. But the the intricacies of this are actually really pertinent because they're a very useful smokescreen. And I think it's been one of the reasons why it's so hard to communicate what this movement and this struggle has been about. Uh, I've been working on it for 20 years, and I think that my parents, who I love and who love me and who live five minutes away from me, I think it's maybe only in the pandemic that they've really understood what I do. I honestly think that a part of the failure with access to coronavirus vaccines and treatments, this huge problem that we're seeing around the world, is in part because it was so hard to communicate what we were doing in 1999 with access to AIDS drugs or you know, in 2010 with access to hepatitis C drugs. And uh, the main reason why it's been so complicated is that it's all shrouded under these incredibly technical layers of patent law, of intellectual property rights, of trade law, of economic theory on incentives for innovation and commercialization. All of that layered with peculiarities of the way cases are decided in countries like the United States also the way that international rules around this are created and amended at places like the World Trade Organization, which just means that it really requires a great degree of effort to create a sort of human translation of what's going on in order to communicate the problem. And I think that hasn't been done as effectively. And that's in part because I think people like Zaki Ahmad, who did do this very, very well in 1999, and people, others like him, are less in this movement now than they used to be. I think it's now a movement that has many, many more people who are sort of clean middle-class activists with university educations like me. And I think actually that's very wrong and and bad for the movement um, because it's people who are talking to each other, assuming that, of course, everybody understands every single intricacy of uh, how the World Trade Organization has operated in the last 25 years, And in fact, outside of a circle of about five people, nobody understands this and nobody should understand it because it it really is one of the most hellishly boring things on earth. Uh, But it's incredibly crucial because that is the driving force that motivates uh, the the companies to be emboldened to do what they can and and in this pandemic as well. Uh, But ironically, it's actually the confusion around this and the incredible, seemingly incredible density of, of, of trade law and economic information that you had to process was also the reason that companies could get away with creating a global regime for these monopolies, because that's what they are. So essentially, intellectual property monopolies are state-sanctioned 20-year monopoly terms that are granted to innovators of any kind. And in our case, what we're concerned with is innovators of pharmaceuticals, people who bring pharmaceuticals to market. And prior to the 1990s, these were largely sovereign decisions. So countries could make their own choices about what they wanted and what they didn't want. And many did, including in Europe and in many rich countries. But by 1996, with the creation of the World Trade Organization, companies saw a way to turn this into a global law. And they did that by putting in rules at the World Trade Organization that bound any member country to creating a sort of uniform standard of protection and enforcement of these primarily pharmaceutical and technology monopolies. And it's a very, very strange thing because, you know, when we think of monopolies, all of us, I think even those who have no idea of how antitrust uh, law works or 
what it's about. We think of monopolies as bad things. I mean, everyone has been trained to think of monopolies as as undesirable things, undesirable for the market, undesirable for society, just for humanity. But and yet you have state sanctioned monopolies that are being granted that are seen as a very, very good thing in pharmaceuticals, which has been, I think, the smoothest sort of takeover that that I can think of in the last 25 years, uh, because when it happened, it went completely unnoticed. It was not contested or protested. It was there. But unfortunately, very soon after it was there and countries were bound to it, um, you had this problem of HIV and AIDS, which exploded in some of the poorest countries on earth, in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, Asia. And suddenly they discovered what it meant that these monopolies had been globalized and turned effectively into a kind of international law. It meant that they could not have access to the medicines they needed to live. Right. And and one thing that you told me in the past that was really striking was that these companies essentially file for a global patent by ticking a box, right? Like it's not monopoly. It's not a national monopoly. These are international monopolies that are enforced very rigorously worldwide. It's, it's just a really strange set of overlapping uh, rules and treaties. And, and there are sort of, there are actual ways out of it. So the WTO does set a kind of minimum standard that all countries have to adhere to. And that's absolutely a rule that any member country of the WTO must comply with. But then there's a lot of leeway within that minimum standard, which means that you can do all kinds of interesting things. And so India had to amend its patent law in 2005 to comply with the WTO. And what we did was something very different to what had been done in rich countries. Rich countries had spent the last 30 or 40 years progressively expanding what could be patented. And so if you had high standards for patentability in the 1940s and 50s, which basically means you had to really invent something in order to have it patented, uh, by the 1990s, you know, you could you could invent water and then put it in a glass and then call that another invention and patent it. But what India did instead was to restore the bar. And so it just raised the bar much, much higher and said, look, you know, if you just do something silly and trivial, you change a pharmaceutical from a pill to a liquid and it really means nothing. It doesn't, you know, increase the efficacy of the thing itself. Then you can't have a patent on it because it just makes no sense. Another thing that happened is that Argentina, which is a really interesting outlier, uh, refused to sign something called the Patent Cooperation Treaty, which had been around even prior to the WTO, uh, even to prior to its creation. The Patent Cooperation Treaty was a way by which you could sit in the United States and say, oh, I'll have a global patent. And, you know, with a one little sort of tick mark, you could have a global a patent that had was respected and had to be adhered to in every single member country of that patent cooperation treaty. We signed it, India did. So as a result, we have really strange situations where people have patents that they don't even want. So we were protesting uh, a cystic fibrosis uh, drug to create more access to it in the United Kingdom. I was working with colleagues on this. And I looked into the situation in India, and we had a patent on those drugs, which was going to be very difficult to overturn. But it was through this patent cooperation treaty, we found that in two years after the patent had been granted to that company, Vertex, they had sold nine units of that drug, like literally nine units. 
which clearly shows that it wasn't something that they even wanted. They got it because they could really easily and really simply. Argentina did not sign that treaty. And so if Vertex wanted a patent in Argentina, they'd actually have to engage a law firm there and then apply directly in the Argentinian patent office to get a monopoly protection on this drug, which they didn't do because they didn't think Argentina was a big enough market. So as a result, Argentina could make generic or Cambi, which is the drug that we needed in the UK. And so uh, together with a couple of people, an organization called Just Treatment, actually, I helped to get the Argentinian or Cambi drug uh, tested and certified by the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. And then they actually flew people down to Argentina and formed a buyer's club. And they said, while we're fighting to get access to uh, the UK version of this drug, uh, at a cheaper price, we're just going to buy it from Argentina because it's it's a sixth of the cost. And that's because they did not sign this one little treaty. It's amazing because we associate bureaucracy with red tape and jumping through hoops, but this is like red carpets for the corporations and red tape for people, right? It's like, make it, make it as easy as possible. I want to ask you a really basic question. And, you know, you got to this with PrEP where you said this is built on CDC <laughs> research, but, you know, specifically for these coronavirus vaccines, who funded them? Because there's a lot of confusion here. We read that, you know, Pfizer deserves credit because they didn't take research and development money from the Trump administration. And then Dolly Parton is is lionized for helping to fund the Moderna vaccine. You know, so who funded these vaccines actually? And, and I guess then the next question is, and who owns them? A simple answer to both questions, Astra, you do. You funded them and you own them. I mean, and I, I'm serious about this. You know, you, you live in America. I know that, you know, you, you're from Canada, but you live there now and you pay taxes in the United States. And that actually means you funded and own all the vaccines that the U.S. government invested in. And in cases of, let's say, Pfizer, where the U.S. government uh, really did not technically invest in the research, but we can get to how else they incentivize Pfizer, Germany, the government of Germany, for instance, gave Pfizer a, a grant for research, a sort of no-strings grant to simply research this vaccine of close to $500 million. This is the most interesting thing about the coronavirus vaccines. And what it's brought out is something that's always been true. It's just been less visibly true, right? And what I mean by that is that in the United States, the National Institutes of Health but also the vast other federal, state, and public institutional funds that flow into medical uh, schools and research institutions. All of that money, the public money, then gets funneled out in first into patents and then into licenses of those patents to private pharmaceutical companies who put those drugs on the market without any acknowledgement or accountability of the public funding that went into their creation. They're put out as private products of uh, the fruit of private capital uh, with a clean history that has no connection to the, the enormous, vast public resources that went into their making, directly and indirectly. Uh, this is a real uh, achievement in some ways. You know, I, I sort of doff my hat to it. And the only reason that it's more visible in the coronavirus pandemic is that governments suddenly had to justify what they were doing to help the creation of these vaccines. And so instead of sort of brushing under the carpet all of these this money that was eventually going directly into the hands of the pharmaceutical companies, they publicized it. And 
that publicity meant that we had a sort of running account of the kinds of money that was going towards these companies uh, making the vaccines. Right. And so this is why Americans now, when they go and get their vaccine, it's quote unquote free, right? So you walk into a Walgreens and you don't pay, but it's not free <laughs> because your tax dollars, public money has funded this. But, you know, nevertheless, people paid for it. right? People feel this shock that, oh, wow, I don't have to give an extra, you know, a few hundred bucks for this at the, the point of injection. You know, it's like Bernie Sanders said, right? I mean, this is, I think, what happens in a society where you're used to paying for everything twice. I mean, which is what Americans have been doing, sadly, all this time. Um, and suddenly you're only paying for it once and then it's just, you know, a massive shock. But look, you know, there is a way by which people in America are actually paying for them already a couple of times over. And I explain what I mean by that. So the idea of the, the monopoly that is given through patents by, let's say, the government of the United States to Pfizer for its vaccine. The idea behind that is that Pfizer has to risk a lot of private capital in the research and development of this thing, of this pharmaceutical that they're making, or the vaccine, and that they need an incentive to invest that private capital in this research without a you know clear idea of whether it'll work or not, or you know the idea that they might have to have several failed experiments before they find a successful pharmaceutical or a vaccine. So the, the logic of the patent monopoly is that it's a reward for the risk that is taken by private actors with private capital. That's the, the, that's the incentive, that's the underpinning of the entire intellectual property monopoly system. And there are a couple of ways, actually two particular ways in which this completely falls apart in the coronavirus pandemic. And the first is that governments paid for research. And so this is, you know, for you and I, like we both write, by the way, and we both create things, you know, for other people or films. And very often, um, if you're making a, a film for a, a network or if you're making a film for a, a funding organization, that funding organization can have some say in uh, how your film is licensed or who, who views your film or the idea that if you're commissioning something, typically, that they own it. When you write for a magazine, typically, they, they own the right to do what they would like with the piece that you've written for them and you're paid for it, right? Now, that falls apart because in this case, the United States government has fully funded the research and development of the Moderna and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, which was just approved in the United States. Fully uh, Moderna was funded to the tune of about a billion dollars and Johnson & Johnson to the tune of over a billion dollars, which meant that the, the entire process of risk while developing a vaccine, which might not have worked out at all, was essentially painless for these two companies because they would not have lost a dime if all that research had gone to naught. In, in Pfizer's case, it was slightly less than wholly funded because the German government only gave them nearly $500 million for their research. Um, and then presumably they put in some more. But what happened is that during that research, at, at some stage, very early in that research, when it seemed like they were going to be successful, 
the United States and Europe stepped in again to give them another kind of incentive. Uh, economists would call this prize funds. Uh, so Joe Stiglitz, so I work with uh, you know a bunch of other economists who looking at alternatives to the patent system from a sort of efficiency angle and from a welfare angle have suggested this idea of prize funds. So if you develop a, a great pharmaceutical, the first person to bring it to market just gets a whole pile of cash, but no monopoly, which means then that anyone can make it. But the US and the EU kind of did this to these companies. So they did this with Moderna by giving them very early on about $1.5 billion in guaranteed pre-orders. So they said, look, here's a contract. You get a billion and a half if your vaccine clears RFDA. And they did that to Pfizer to an even greater extent. I think it was actually $2 billion. The EU gave Pfizer, I think, uh, advanced contracts of roughly the same amount of money, between two and three billion dollars. And all these contracts have been augmented, by the way, since you know the vaccines were put into circulation in December. Which means that you know whatever billions I'm talking about have either sort of doubled or tripled uh, since the time that they came to market. Johnson and Johnson has these pre-orders as well. So what it means is that not only is your research process completely paid for by another party, you also have completely guaranteed, watertight, profitable market for these vaccines that is completely tied up prior to your even putting it out, which which really means that somebody's paid for your research entirely. Somebody's giving you a profitable price to acquire all the vaccines you create. And by the way, on top of that, you also have a global monopoly on the production of these vaccines. So you can restrict them from getting to lower income countries who need them. Right. And then it's all shrouded in this rhetoric of risk and investment and, oh, this research is so complicated. (laughs) But I'm saying it's the third incentive, like the monopoly (laughs) that they're now using (laughs) to withhold these vaccines from us is the third incentive they got after having their research funded and guaranteed markets uh, for the doses that they can produce. And so this is why you wrote your, you have been very prolific this year, my friend. So you had this great co-authored New York Times op-ed, Want Vaccines Fast, Suspend Intellectual Property Rights. And, you know, really the piece is about a proposal, which was put forward by India and by South Africa in October of last year, which calls on the World Trade Organization uh, to exempt member countries from enforcement of certain patents, right, or trade secrets, that are, I think, sort of monitored by what's called TRIPS, which is trade-related intellectual property rights. There are so many acronyms in this world that you're in. Could you talk about that proposal and why the best solution, given the pandemic, just to suspend intellectual property rights, just <laughs> forget about them for a while? And you know, this piece in, or this proposal uh, inspired an interesting re- rebuke from the Wall Street Journal, which denounced this this proposal as a quote-unquote patent heist. So the title of that piece by the editorial board was a global COVID vaccine heist. India and South Africa want the WTO to violate private U.S. patents. Okay, so you know, just give us a summary of your, your argument there and, and why this proposal is significant. Uh, last year in April, a, a quick backgrounder, I believe sincerely, as did people I was writing with and working with, that 
the pandemic would create a different kind of model to bring these vaccines and treatments to market, right? I mean, I, I really honestly did not believe that anyone would think that the old way of doing business was the right way to do business. And I thought then when early in the pandemic that my job was to try and say, look, whatever you're going to do to make these vaccines available in the pandemic, that should be the rule, not the exception. So I truly believe that we'd have all these different exceptional things that would happen because of the pandemic and the exceptional global urgency that it required, and that we needed to say this should be the rule, not the exception. By the time we got around to writing that piece for the New York Times, which I, which I co-authored with Arjun Jaydev and Dean Baker, that we were completely disabused of that notion that we were going to do things differently. And not just disabused of it, but it turned out that not only would we be allowing monopolies, we would be sort of supercharging them in this case, because vaccines come with multiple layers of monopolies on them, uh, which make it even more complicated. So what happened was that a really inspired South African uh, trade representative in Geneva called Mustakim de Gama came up with an idea that he was inspired with from conversations with a, a lovely activist group called the Third World Network to uh, ask for a suspension of trips, which really did seem like the most logical thing, but it was also incredibly audacious, you know, because you've had all kinds of battles that have been fought around this stupid little trade law, which has killed so many people across the last 25 years of its existence. It was a mistake to start with, a complete mistake that nobody understood that they were signing on to, which in a way he was trying to correct in the pandemic and use this opportunity to say, look, for heaven's sake, like, you know, given that the world's economy is at a standstill, given that there are actual lives that are hanging in the balance in a majority of the countries in the world with no hope of access to vaccines or an exit from this pandemic anytime soon, please let's suspend the one thing that we know is causing this problem to last much longer than it should. Monopolies. Typically, <laughs> what happened was a massive blowback. But two things happened. One, uh, a number of developing countries came to the support of South Africa and India. Uh, now, in fact, the count is actually over 100 developing countries out of 165 member countries of the WTO support the proposal. But the problem is the WTO works on something called consensus, which means that if one member objects, that proposal won't go through. And in this case, more than one member objects. That's the United States, that's Australia, that's Japan, that's Canada, that's uh, the United Kingdom, that's Brazil, inexplicably. But basically, all the richest countries in the world and Brazil, which whose mind, I think, is in some kind of a peculiar fog at the moment. But because they object to it, they will make sure that this proposal doesn't go through. But it's still creating an unbelievably interesting dialogue. So the U European Union at first started objecting it in, I think, October of last year, saying, look... We don't see any evidence that intellectual property is a problem. And it, we, in fact, think it's the solution. It's the lifeblood of the pharmaceutical industry and innovation. And that's why we have vaccines. So suspending it would mean you, don't want, you won't get vaccines. And just a couple of weeks ago, they amended that objection very slightly to say, oh, yeah, yeah, actually, we think that this might actually be a problem. And sure, we acknowledge that. But you know what we found is that you can't actually use this technology to make vaccines because you can't actually make them anywhere else in the world. So we're still going to object to it because, you know, yes, you're kind of right. It's valid. But obviously, you're not going to be able to use it because, as everybody knows, only uh, Europeans and Americans can make vaccines. So what, what use will it be if we support it? So we just won't. And that's been beautiful to watch. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, you know, to that, to your, your, your 
sarcasm there that only the U.S. you know and Europeans can make vaccines. I mean, the U.S. again with this trade agreement, they're not just hoarding vaccines. It's not like there's just a limited supply. They're stopping other countries from making them. And then they're saying, and then the Wall Street Journal is saying, if we let other countries make their own vaccines, that would be a heist. Yeah, no, it's astonishing. Look, I tell you what, I, I'll tell you what the logic is. The logic is firstly really convoluted. So it's a set of couple of things. It's a playbook that was written literally in the mid 1990s. So it's just sounding tired and they know that, right? And so what they're doing is they're trying to sort of pepper it with, you know, little sprinkles of stuff from, you know, the last couple of months or the last year or so. Um, but one of the most interesting, uh, <laughs> Uh, sort of fightbacks we had. Oh well, to, to your point, one of the to, to your point, one of the lines, the main argument of this Wall Street Journal piece is that actually, and I'll quote it here, that such an effort would harm everyone, including the poor. So they cannot. They know they cannot simply invoke profits for pharmaceutical companies. They have to say that they're actually upholding the system on behalf of the world's poor. You know, I think what it is, is it's that old uh, famous saying, uh, which is, you know, give a person a vaccine and then he might never learn how to make his own, I guess, or something. And I'm being, I've mm-hmm. just been completely facetious. But yeah, no, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. I mean, the idea that this is going to hurt the poor and that the Wall Street Journal has the poor's interest in mind, I mean, is just un, un, Conscionable. I mean, it's it's just I I don't know how they expected anyone to believe that. But the more interesting objection, actually, from many what are called maybe centrist economists, uh, liberal centrist economists in the United States, etc., is you know, okay, fine, fine. I see you have a point. Maybe that will work in this pandemic. But then, what will happen in the next pandemic? We won't have any vaccines. And I'm just thinking, like, that's a pretty big thing to acknowledge, right? That like you have you know the the International Chambers of Commerce, uh, International Chamber of Commerce, estimated that we'd have something like between sort of a two and sort of eight trillion dollar loss to the global economy uh, because of the pandemic. And if it sort of drags on, vaccine inequality would cause this massive loss to increase, including in rich countries. Um, You know, the death toll is now uh, over two million. So the idea that or or a fine, maybe you'll solve this pandemic, you know, this sort of minor thing that's going on right now. But then, you know, watch out for the next one. We're not going to make your vaccines then. I, I thought that was an astonishing argument to make because there was something so absurd about that, that, you know, the people who were making it just couldn't see and really did think was a was a genuinely robust admonishment of why we should leave things the way they are. So, That is an absurd argument, and it's extra absurd, I I now know, because of something I learned from you, from another great piece that you wrote during this pandemic. I think listeners of The Dig, you know, as I said, are probably fairly familiar with the crimes of big pharma, but we're less familiar with some of the success stories or the good things that are happening. So I want to actually quote the opening paragraph of article you wrote, was co-authored with the economist Joseph Stiglitz, who you mentioned. So this is how you open. Imagine a world in which a global network of medical professionals monitored for emerging strains of a contagious virus periodically updated an established formula for vaccinating against it and then made that information available to companies and countries around the world. Moreover, imagine if this work were done without any intellectual property considerations and without pharmaceutical monopolies exploiting a desperate public to maximize their profits. This may sound like a utopian fantasy, but it is actually a description of how the flu vaccine has been produced for the last 50 years. So say more about that. I mean, we we just take this for granted. I had no idea that this is the infrastructure of the flu vaccine. 
you know, the story of the flu vaccine is really astonishing at every single turn. And uh, the most astonishing thing about that, just to say, to start off with, is to say that if I was to come to, you know, uh, the Brookings Institution or something like that and say, oh, hey, I have this idea for how we can make a flu vaccine. We get 110 countries to cooperate and put in money and analyze influenza strains every year. And then we just have someone coordinate that and produce a formula for the flu vaccine based on the kinds of strains that are circulating in the northern and southern hemispheres, and then just put that out and allow anyone to make it and have that happen, I would be dismissed as a as a loony socialist uh, utopian. And unfortunately, that's exactly the way that we've all got the billions of doses of flu vaccines that have been dispensed since the mid-1970s. So a lot of this comes from uh, the work of a really uh, a brilliant uh, scholar called Amy Kopchinsky, who wrote a piece called Order Without Intellectual Property uh, for the Cornell Law Review. And that was also our seed to uh, write this piece about seemingly utopian systems that everyone seems to dismiss when you suggest them, but have been hiding in plain sight under their eyes and is actually the way that they've been able to you know, get through uh, the flu season. Uh, for the last now 45 years. So the flu vaccine actually is super interesting because Jonas, the great Jonas Salk actually has something to do with it. The great Jonas Salk of um, Can You Patent the Sun of the polio vaccine of 1955 actually uh, helped create uh, new versions of the flu vaccine in the 1940s and brought that very uh, robust uh, sense of, I guess, responsible medical research, trying to create the things that the society around him needed at that time to to both the flu vaccine and the polio vaccine. But th- it's very much that that whole tradition, in a way, that then led to the setting up of something called the Global Influenza Surveillance and Response System at the WHO. Amy calls it the flu network, which is just a, a simpler way of saying it. But it is actually a cooperative system of uh, 110 countries who all pool money, um, 140 laboratories. So the United States CDC is a part of it, and as are other laboratories in the U.S. And what they do is they constantly analyze flu strains. They send that in to a centralized node, which is the WHO, which then analyzes the information that it's receiving from all of these countries. And on the basis of what looks like it's more prevalent or what is emerging, et cetera, adjusts the formula for the flu vaccine and lists the strains that should be included in that and then puts that information out publicly. No intellectual property monopolies, no nothing. Just cooperatively, uh, funded by governments and taxpayers and then put back into the public domain by an expert organization with authority. And once that formula is released, then multiple manufacturers, obviously, around the world can make that flu vaccine, which they then do at an affordable price, even in the United States, very affordable here in India. Um, You can get it from multiple suppliers, so there's never a shortage. Every single year, billions of people take this flu vaccine. And that is how we have survived uh, our flu season every single year. It's mind-blowing, right? Because it's one of these things where you're like, how can how can we do this? How can we get the COVID vaccine out to the world, especially because there are these new variants and we'll need boosters? And then it's like, well, here it is. The model exists. 
And there's so much there so much work is done to hide these examples or hide these systems that are actually the solutions, as, as you say, and then you're told, oh, no, this is terribly utopian. How could you possibly suggest this when it actually happens out in the real world? Um, so I think it's just really important to sort of, you know, share that and tell people that not only is this possible, it's actually already happening. So you mentioned Jonas Salk, uh, and you know, we hear about him a lot these days because he famously came up with the polio vaccine and put the polio vaccine in the public domain. And when he was asked why he did this, he said, well, could you patent the sun? So it's a very lovely story, and it's mostly true, but it's not completely true, right? It also matters when this happened, what the political and economic context was. So this happened in March of 1953. That's when he released the vaccine. It's the post-war period in America. It was before the neoliberal turn you've been talking about, before the the IP regime that we've been critiquing emerged. Could you talk about that context and what really happened and why why the why the larger social context matters? Um, so Jonas Salk is a hero, and that segment where he talks to Ed Morrow, I think, and says, uh, can you pay patent the sun? It is incredibly powerful, uh, and I've used that on multiple occasions, and so have many people. It's, of course, not the whole story, sadly. Jonas Salk was uh, a researcher. He had his own lab at the University of Pittsburgh, and then uh, on the basis of, I think, his success with the flu vaccine and other research, he was approached by something called the National Foundation on Infantile Paralysis to uh, look into the possibility of creating a polio vaccine. The the effort to create a polio vaccine, like I think many of these uh, public science efforts at that time, was very participative. So not only was it entirely funded by the government, was largely funded by the government, it also created huge popular interest. And there were people who would write him checks, uh, you know, from from just households who would send him money um, in order to help this research get along. And so I think in one part, it was very. Uh, it was a very public project that was from the start sort of publicly funded and supported. But there's a sort of another twist to it, which is that that they actually did send a letter of inquiry, and it's not clear whether it's Jonas Salk himself or the University of Pittsburgh or the National Foundation on Infantile Paralysis, but somebody uh, connected to Salk sent in an inquiry to see whether they could take patents out on the the polio vaccine. And I think the initial assessment uh, from people who looked at their application was that it would fail to qualify under inventiveness in in terms of just being something that was new enough to be uh, patented. The interesting thing here, I think there are two interesting things here. So one is that it was a visibly public project. And I think that there was in part... Uh, the reluctance to patent from the fact that people understood this as something that belonged to the country and was in the service of humanity. But the second part of that is also uh, the reluctance to patent came from the fact that the United States actually had patent laws that had you know, a, a closer relationship with sanity than they do now, uh, which, which is that, uh, you know, you, 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 you actually had to create something new in order to justify that uh, it was novel uh, rather than simply, you know, make some kind of, you know, insanely useless tweak to something that was existing that made no improvement in it whatsoever, but just granted you, you know, another two or three years of monopoly. 
that that is the, the most you know precise sum of different circumstances that I can relate from the 1940s and the 50s to the kind of environment that exists today. Right. And I think it's important to highlight that not to debunk Jonas Salk, who's definitely a hero and a genius and, and was on the right side, but to say that, you know, we can't just depend on heroes. The context matters to it. It might have helped that it was more difficult to patent the vaccine, right? And that we're shaped by the circumstances and the incentives and what's just taken as normal, right? What is easy to do. And so this kind of shifted, you know, a major turning point was this 1980 Bayh-Dole Act, or the Patent and Trademark Law Amendments Act. This is something that, you know, most of us who are not in the fight like you are, not in the access to meds fight, we, you know, I'm never, I'd never even heard of this legislation, but it really does shift the dynamic. Do you want to talk about that and how the neoliberal fire was lit and we, we entered the, the current reality we're now in? One of the amazing things, I think, about trying to deconstruct the failure of access to coronavirus vaccines today is that how much of the problem that we're experiencing can be traced back to specifically neoliberal policies that were enacted in the 1980s across the world. It really is remarkable. And I think that there is something about that period, literally of the 1980s, that makes it peculiar and special. It was in a way, it was social, it was communism's last hurrah, obviously, because, you know, we had the implosion of the Soviet Union at the end of that decade. I think in, but the 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 the, the counter effect to that, I suppose, uh, if you will, was maybe a, a touchingly immense faith in the non-communist way, in the, the the capitalist neoliberal way, which seems to have gripped parts of the world with, I think, the acquiescence of people in governments and the societies that, that these laws were heaped upon. And especially when it comes to something as, as arcane as changes to how governments can direct or control funding that goes into the production of pharmaceuticals. I think that people really had very little opportunity to even understand what the implications of these laws were. But this happened in the United States in 1980. It happened in the UK in 1988. Uh, These were driven by the governments of that time who uh, uh, fully believed in these policies. And, And the root that they came from was this idea that that government was bad at many things. Yes. And so, of course, this follows very directly from the, you know, the famous public pronouncements of Ronald Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher. But this idea that the that you could have government abdicate its essential responsibility on the basis that it was bad at doing certain things like licensing pharmaceutical inventions, for instance. So the idea behind the Bidol Act was that the government was just sitting on a lot of this innovation and not allowing it to come to market because it just didn't have an incentive to do that. Whereas companies, private companies, would have a better incentive to do that. And so that they should do it. And that the people who are funded to create this innovation should patent it because exclusive licenses through patenting, the best way to guarantee that you create the right incentive structure to commercialize as many of these products as possible. And and the reason all these things matter is that you know, there's there, there's no particular logic to that. I mean, you could have the government say the way it exercises its responsibility is that anything funded by the government must be licensed to multiple supply producers. So license it to five or six, because then that way you'd have competition, right? Um, and presumably lower prices. But the, the but but the logic of the Bidol Act was very precise. Uh, what it encouraged was also a very precise 
Act, which was patenting and the privatization of publicly funded research. It not just allowed it, it encouraged it. And it cleared up any of what they called uh, the ambiguities, which they felt were blocking the commercialization of research. Prior to this, they felt, oh, but nobody knows who owns the patents. And, you know, then would companies really step in and invest and bring something to market if they feel that the government might later assert its right on something, etc. So this just gave a lot of clarity. Essentially, it just had the government handing off all responsibility to the institutions who made the research, but encouraging them to commercialize it in a very particular way that then created this sort of monster monopoly mushroom that uh, we all now live under in the pandemic. Right. And that was sort of mushroomed with the signing of the WTO, which came about in 1995. We've spoken before and you've told me, you know, uh, a different story. So this is what was happening in the United States. You know, Reagan comes to office, we get the Bayh-Dole Act. And and there's this idea that, yes, the government can just fund private enterprise, but not do much else. What is happening in India in the 70s and 80s? Because there, you know, from what you've told me, there was a kind of th- throwing off of the colonial patent regime briefly before before the 90s strikes. Yeah, it's really interesting what happens here. What happens here is that um, in the 1960s, pharmaceutical companies in India, I think, well, there are a couple of things that are happening. Firstly, um, by the 1960s, we are in the grip of the Cold War, and India is very clear on who it's aligning with, which is the USSR, not the United States. So we have the opposite of you know highly uh, capitalized markets and easy import-export controls. We are the opposite of that. We are a country that is aiming for self-sufficiency. Uh, we have very little foreign exchange as a result of you know a cyclical problem where because we're not exporting, we're not getting foreign exchange, so we have to make everything ourselves, etc. And that's very much the policy that. India becomes independent with, actually. So since 1947, that's very much the orientation it takes, but it does enter a a heightened era in the 1960s. You know, private banks are being nationalized. There's a whole range of ways in which the economy is actually becoming more socialized and socialist than it even was. And that has been created out of the initial early post-independence 1947 impetus was uh, a pharmaceutical industry. And one particular company called Sipla is run by a person called Khwaja Hamid, who then decides, like the late 1960s, that he suddenly can't make a whole lot of drugs because one of the laws we've forgotten to overturn in 1947 is a colonial patent law that we have simply continued because nobody understood what it meant or what it was for. And he goes to the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi and he says, look, this should be overturned. And She said, yes, that makes sense. And she did. And the reason they could do that is that, firstly, we had sovereign authority to do so. We weren't signatories to something that said we couldn't. And the other reason we could do that is that it was part of a a socialist project of being self-sufficient, creating industries that could give cater to at least the very basic needs, right? So, I mean, you know, we didn't have uh, VCRs or, you know, cable television, but we would have life-saving medicines. And that was the idea then. So they actually get that to happen in 1970. And then that leads to the creation of giant, highly profitable genetic drug industries, which for the next 25 years, uninterrupted, create this vast market where you have multiple suppliers for every drug that you need at extremely low prices. What happens simultaneously in the 1980s in Europe and the United States is through, in part, what has happened because of the Bayh-Dole Act, which is a massive increase in in patenting. 
which is to say not a massive increase in useful innovation necessarily, but merely a massive increase in patenting itself. People are beginning to realize the value of the rent that they can draw from this incredibly unusual form of property that is so easy to maintain because there's actually no sort of physical aspect to it whatsoever. And what they realize is if they're drawing all these rents from this intellectual property in pharmaceuticals that they own in the United States and Europe, they should be able to do that in the rest of the world as well. And so uh, Pfizer and IBM, on behalf of the pharmaceutical and tech industries, they insert themselves into the U.S. government, especially the U.S. Trade Representative's office, in its negotiations in the run-up to the creation of the World Trade Organization and insist on the inclusion of a rule. So the technical term is trade rule, but what it functions like is sort of international law because countries have to have their domestic laws comply with that rule. And also if they fall afoul of that rule will be hauled up at a WTO sort of court. And what they decide is that they'll insert a law that mandates a sort of global standard for intellectual property protection and enforcement at the World Trade Organization. The, the reason that this is actually quite strange and novel is because at that time, there's a much older organization that exists, which is called the World Intellectual Property Organization, right? So you'd imagine that if you had to have an intellectual property law, that might be the best place to have it. Except that what they also realized is that that organization had no teeth. So if you fell afoul of WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, you know, that was sort of like offending UNESCO. It's not something anybody bothered about or cared about and had any kind of consequence. Now, the WTO, on the other hand, the World Trade Organization, that is actually the lifeblood of every economy around the world. So every country now primarily exists because of trade. Uh, you know, this is true whether you're importing or exporting. You exist because you trade. And if the protection and enforcement of intellectual property was linked to your ability to exist, they assumed then it might work better. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what they were able to get away with. Because again, I think... By the 1990s, many of the countries, including India, who were signing on to these laws, didn't fully understand what this meant. You know, they proposed some sort of leeway. They said, oh, India, you'll have 10 years to change your laws and poorer countries will have 15 years to change their laws and it's going to be fine. And this is just a small little thing. And then they put that in. And that's really how it came about in 1996. And then it immediately had um, an incredibly incredibly horrible effect on uh, curtailing access to medicines. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism by Harsha Walia. Border and Rule is an urgent global account of the migration crisis and the function of borders across political, social, cultural, and economic systems. Harsha Walia disrupts easy explanations for the migrant and refugee crisis, instead showing them to be the inevitable outcome of conquest, capitalist globalization, and climate change generating mass dispossession worldwide. 
Border and Rule explores a number of seemingly disparate global geographies with shared logics of border rule that displace, immobilize, criminalize, exploit, and expel migrants and refugees. Border Rule is a clarion call for revolution. The book includes a foreword from renowned scholar Robin D.G. Kelly and an afterword from acclaimed activist academic Nick Estes. As Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, said of the book, This indispensable, deeply researched, and beautifully written book is the first and most in-depth global analysis of borders and immigration, wars and displacement, imperialism and Western white nationalism. Always with her ear to the ground and paying close attention to the people whose lives are wrecked or lost, Walia demands action and offers real solutions. Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism by Harsha Walia. Out now from Haymarket Books. And so where are we now? Because, you know, that's that's the international trade regime that was that put in place in the 90s. And, you know, now we're in a moment where we're sort of debating, well, is this the end of neoliberalism? We have a sort of rise of ethno-nationalism and then this vaccine nationalism we've been discussing. I mean, how do you describe the, the global situation? Uh, and, you know, in the beginning of the interview, you talked about the fact that, you know, Russia also has its Sputnik vaccine. China has also developed a vaccine, then we have the American pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, are these are these countries competing? What is the relationship at that level now? And then if you could also talk about the COVAX initiative, which is something else you briefly mentioned, which is sort of the attempt to have some sort of, you know, public spirited collaboration. Uh, what is that endeavor and how does it relate to these bigger geopolitical struggles? You know, let's talk about, you know, what this has meant for institutions like the WTO and COVAX. And then we can get to the Russian and Chinese vaccines because that's, you know, that's quite different in terms of what's happening there. Uh, What's really interesting is for the first time, um, pharmaceutical companies and even organizations like the WTO, you know, what the, the thing that I've seen is a difference in tone. If I had said the same thing, which, by the way, I did like 10 years ago or 15 years ago, whatever it is, I'd just be laughed at. Like, I wouldn't actually get an audience with the next director general of the WTO uh, like I did some time ago. You actually, you 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 debated her recently, just a few weeks ago, about this this very issue. And, I did. And she actually said, uh, yes, what is her name? Dr. Ngozi. Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela. Yes. And she basically, you know, agreed to all of your points, you know, verbally, it doesn't mean that she actually will implement them as policies, but she sort of had to, she had to acknowledge that, you know, <laughs> your points were very valid. And this is the thing, you see. So I think that the difference between now and then, anytime in the past, is that a, we had all these isolated things. So if it was AIDS in Southern Africa, it was somewhere else. If it was hepatitis C in Brazil, it was still somewhere else. Hepatitis C in Ukraine, definitely somewhere else, right? Um, cancer access in India, cool not us. And so there were all these tiny little pockets of resistance that were springing up around the world to a casual observer. They were not even connected. It's only people like us who worked on these things completely that understood what the links were. And now with the pandemic, this idea of access, it's not something that can be swept under the rug any longer. And so people, A, cannot deny it, even at pharmaceutical companies. 
And people also cannot afford to ignore calls for access as they could in the past. So in the past, you really could ignore this and get away with it. Sometimes activists would have extraordinary success by, you know, staging these really bloody die-ins and things like that, where they'd pour fake blood or, you know, make some other kind of spectacular disruption of some highly publicized press event or something, right? Um, And that would certainly get a response. But in in most cases, um, it didn't get a response because you could get away with that if you were a pharmaceutical company. You can't now. But the, the sad thing is that what it's prompted instead, like I think Dr. Iwela did when we debated, was uh, this idea that now it's very important to pay lip service to it without actually doing anything about it. And, and the thing that they hide behind is actually something that you mentioned, it's also Bill Gates's favorite line. And actually now it sort of makes my skin crawl every time I hear it, which is that when, when, when as soon as somebody is saying vaccines are complex, I, I do actually want to find a really rough concrete wall on which I can bang my head immediately because um, it really is the most infuriating thing to hear. You know, we uh, have now uh, multiple, multiple, multiple countries in the world that can make vaccines and evaluate them. The world is a very, very different place to what I think, you know, rich people in Seattle feel it is. It really makes no sense to say things like this. Uh, it's not a good excuse for anyone who understands the issues, but they can still get away with it and they do that. And one of the ways they do that is that all the the investment in a philanthropic exercise to create access to the world, all of that effort on the part of rich countries, on the part of rich people like Bill Gates, on the part of international institutions like the WTO, but also, unfortunately, the WHO, who has not been a good actor in this, has been to this thing called the COVAX facility, which you mentioned, uh, which is really worth going into, you know. And uh, we were talking about it. You were saying one of the things is it's so hard to understand what the hell it is, actually, uh, like literally what it is. Because it has three names. It literally has three names. It's COVAX, it's Gavi, it's... Some acronym. Yeah, it's I mean, even worse. You can't even, you even, can't even keep it straight. Can I just tell you? Yeah. So the COVAX facility is three organizations. The WHO, which is meant to be, I think, the sort of ethical policy partner, yeah, which truly on the account of having no money at all is actually just like a squashed voice in that group. It's Gavi. Gavi is the Vaccines Alliance. It's a 20-year-old organization that was largely set up by, I think, the governments of Norway, a couple of other European countries, and the Gates Foundation in order to get vaccines to poor countries. And it is a truly hellishly named organization that's a couple of years old called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, which I think should give a raise to whoever it is who thought of that name, whichever, you know, marketing firm or market research company that came up with it really deserves an award. So these three organizations together are the COVAX facility. Yeah. The WHO has failed in some ways prior to this um, that are really arcane, which uh, matter to how COVAX functions. And the, the one that matters the most is how its view of the world. So its view of the world is sort of stuck in the mid 20th century when it was founded, which is that you have a couple of countries like the US and Canada and Europe who have high standards. And then you have the rest of the world, which should be suspect. And that's how it evaluates drugs and vaccines. And that's now causing a huge problem, which we'll get to. Um, Then you have CEPI. CEPI is just too young to matter in some way. And they also have less money to matter. But CEPI is an organization that's designed to push money into accelerating vaccine research. So they started funneling money. So they gave um, hundreds of millions of dollars, over $400 million, actually, to the AstraZeneca project in the middle of last year. And they gave out 
you know, a million dollars to the Moderna vaccine effort, a, a range of other investments like that to vaccines that work, uh, vaccines that they thought would work rather. And just, you know, coincidentally, um, and I'm sure that this is not a case of bias in any way, but they only invested in Western vaccines that were being made by proper Western people in proper Western countries last year. And then, by the way, they did these more or less without any kind of conditions whatsoever. So these, this money that was given to companies was, uh, was not connected to having to then provide access to those vaccines elsewhere, right? Despite the fact that it's government money from different rich countries that is then being funneled through CEPI to the vaccine manufacturers. Um, it was just given as a, here's a little reward to make you uh, make this vaccine a little faster. And then there's Gavi. So Gavi is 20 years old and Gavi's had a lot of failures, right? Including actually a kind of original sin that Gavi was born with, which is the idea that vaccination is sexier than improving health systems. I am working on another piece, which has been taking years, but uh, months. I spoke to someone uh, who was who wishes to remain anonymous, but you know was very central to the organization in its early years. And he said that he fundamentally disagreed with what Gavi was trying to do because vaccinations are seen as a sort of magic bullet. And it's the kind of thing that Bill Gates likes because, you know, you can put the results of your annual vaccination plans into a one PowerPoint slide. And you can say, what what did we do? We dispensed a million vaccines. We saved 800,000 lives. And countries like the United Kingdom or European countries who give aid money just also really like that immediate result, right? What they don't like as much is to invest in training more nurses. Uh, what they don't like as much is to invest in the very, very long-term efforts of improving medical school facilities or uh, extending rural health care. All the kinds of things that have actually made countries like Vietnam, which had a very peculiarly wonderful experience in this pandemic in terms of you know, low cases, low mortality, robust responses because of a robust base, right? So essentially not doing all of the kinds of things that made Vietnam, Vietnam, which is to say concentrating money into a sort of what this person called a magic bullet solution, where vaccine, one pop, done, out, super clean result, can show it on a PowerPoint, pleases Bill Gates. Yeah. Um, so that's the original sin that Gavi was created with. But then, uh, you know, Gavi's main bread and butter has been vaccines that nobody in the West wants. So I, for instance, you know, our children, we get tuberculosis vaccines, uh, all kinds of things here that no one in the West takes. So Gavi's bread and butter was buying vaccines for poor countries and subsidizing them that pretty much there was no competition for. Right. The U.S. was not trying to buy those vaccines because nobody there wanted them. When they went into patented vaccines for pneumonia, for instance, which are highly profitable in the States, there too, you know, they weren't buying vaccines for which they were competing actively uh, on the supply with the EU or the US. What they would do is go to countries and say, can I buy some quantity of vaccines from you uh, at a discounted price? And then they would sell them on at a subsidized price, putting in aid money to the poor countries that they were selling them to. Uh, and that's because you know, there wasn't a scramble for these vaccines, right? So now we get to the coronavirus pandemic and Gavi is faced with a market that it has no experience dealing with uh, for a couple of reasons. So one, its uh, business is actually buying vaccines from the West and supplying them to poor countries. Now, it's actually competing with the West for vaccines. And that's not something it's ever done before. And it actually doesn't know how to do very well. Um, and so you can imagine when countries like Israel are willing to pay twice the price of a Pfizer vaccine 
uh, how tempting it is for Gavi to go to them and say, look, I mean, I know you can sell it for double the price, but I'd like a lot of vaccines and I want them at a discount. That's obviously not a good business proposition. And they found that out. Um, so Pfizer didn't sign with them for, for ages. But the second problem is that they've also now decided to take on uh, rich countries as clients. So Gavi said, we will only have scale in terms of negotiating with pharmaceutical companies for vaccines if we become the centralized buying agent for everyone. We want rich countries to buy through us and we want poor countries to buy through us. And then we, or like Seth uh, Berkeley, who is the head of Gavi, will be the sort of vaccine lord yeah, of the world. So and that didn't work out because it, literally immediately as he said this, all of these countries said, yes, yes, yes. And then immediately went out and made their own vaccine deals of huge quantities, but also quantities to such an extent that there was nothing left over for Gavi. So like the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, for instance, they have been bought out to an extent of you know between 80 and 90 percent of all of their supplies of 2021 uh, already spoken for, uh, which means that there's actually nothing really left for Gavi. Uh, but the second thing it meant is that Gavi was at the back of the queue because they were trying to buy vaccines at a lower price and really had very little else to offer uh, in the pandemic. And plus, rich countries also, some of them, like Canada and others, decided to put some money into Gavi to buy vaccines for themselves as well. So Gavi was suddenly dealing with a whole set of circumstances it had no experience in and had no idea how to navigate. And then that showed very quickly. So I, I actually wrote pieces about this really early in The Guardian about Gavi's lack of preparation for the job that it, it had undertaken. It really did promise to be the world's savior in the pandemic. And I think that the worst thing that happened with their duplicity was that many poor countries did actually believe them. They did not go out and make their own deals. They did not even get together to try to make some kind of a deal because the logic was that Gavi will save you. How that's worked out is that Three months after Western countries started vaccinating their citizens in the millions, a couple of weeks ago, Gavi sent out his very first shipment of vaccines, which was 600,000 doses of AstraZeneca to Ghana. That's enough for 300,000 people or less than 1% of Ghana's population. That's not a solution. It's a trickle. And that's what they're going to do to every other country that they've promised vaccine doses to send out trickles. And this for a number of reasons. But the, the first reason is that Gavi is an organization that is singularly ill-equipped to handle this kind of emergency situation in a pandemic where it's competing with rich countries. Its business model is actually wrong. It was always wrong, but it's it's become, it's sort of metastasized in the pandemic. Its, its faults are, are, are now much more glaring. It is simply unable to do its job. In part, that's because they've only relied on Western vaccines. They did not trust vaccines that were being developed in other countries. They did genuinely believe that those were beneath their uh, interest and, and therefore artificially limited the supply of vaccines that they themselves could get. And then secondly, because they did not question the pharmaceutical business model. They believe in it, uh, much to the contrary. And they have supported every desire on the part of the pharmaceutical industry to entrench its monopolies and then use this public money to further entrench its monopolies. They've never stood up for it. They've never stood up against them. They've never supported anything like the COVID-19 technology access pool I was talking about or any other measure to, to try to get a better outcome. They have never tried to ask pharmaceutical companies to say, look, give us a license. We'll find a capable manufacturer. 
Pfizer is not counting on large revenues coming in from Central African Republic or from Guinea or from Bangladesh or from any number of the other poor countries in the world. And there's no reason why Gavi couldn't have just thought a little differently and said, there are all these countries you're not interested in. Allow us to find a way to make your vaccines there with other people who are not based in the West, right? Uh, but they didn't do that. And so their faith in the pharmaceutical industry business model, uh, something a faith that their largest individual donor, Bill Gates, absolutely shares, and their touching faith in the the supremacy of Western science has actually led them to the situation where they have basically no vaccines to give. Right. And this was, again, you know, supposed to be the international framework that would help get vaccines to uh, poorer countries. And there was a an article, I think it was the Washington Post, co-signed by multiple authors, including the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, talking about how this was an effort of global solidarity. I'm sure you know this better than me. I might be misremembering. And then Canada actually requested vaccines through COVAX. Am I wrong? You're absolutely right. So the 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 term that a friend of mine uses actually is COVAX washing. And so the idea was, I was in a debate uh, with a member of the House of Lords, uh, and it was a, a, a broadcast to the European Parliament. And the person I was debating was someone uh, who was really high up in DFID, the Department of Foreign and International Development or something, I think the, the USAID equivalent in the UK. And when I asked him why the UK wasn't trying to get access con- access provisions encoded in the contracts when it had forked over large sums of money to pharmaceutical companies, he basically said, this was in May or June, he said, look, you know, we're giving money to Gavi. Gavi takes care of poor countries with vaccines. That's what they do. That's their job. They're going to take care of poor countries. Um, this is very much the same line that Justin Trudeau and others have said. I have to say this is the, very much the same line that Joe Biden has told, right? So so Biden's uh, act of lip service towards international vaccine access is giving $4 billion to Gavi, to the COVAX facility. It's the thing that is simplest for a rich country to do, throw a little bit of money at the at Gavi or at the COVAX facility and say that that takes care of global access. Gavi is great. Bill Gates said so multiple times. It must be great. They're going to take care of poor countries. I'm going to deal with mine. The 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 beautiful thing about this is that in Justin Trudeau's case, uh, it's come back to bite him because Canada botched uh, the way that it negotiated, like many other small countries actually, who negotiated good prices and didn't have the foresight of Israel, you know, not only to Palestinians in its territory from having access to these vaccines, but also to jump ahead of the queue by paying more. Canada is now getting supplies very late, which means that its vaccination rollout is among the slowest, and it actually needs the doses that that the COVAX facility can give it. So it's actually one of those rich countries that is going to absolutely take the doses that the COVAX facility buys for it, which are truly meant for the poorest countries in the world, right? But uh, this is the way in which every single uh, rich country government abdicated its responsibility on vaccine access by handing it over to an incompetent organization that right from the start was set up to fail. So we've seen in this example how broken Western pharma is and how broken Western philanthropy is. Bill Gates will not save us. Um, What would you like to see? I mean, we've hinted at it. We've talked about the model of the, the way the flu vaccine is rolled out. We've talked about suspending 
intellectual property rights. But I mean, could you just take a few minutes? This is a socialist podcast, you know, and lay out what your paradigm would be. What, and then after you do that, I want to talk a bit about leverage and organizing. So I think one of the things that happened uh, two weeks ago that I think is really instructive, uh, it got less attention than it deserves. Um, the uh, Brazilian uh, city of Manaus, uh, which is uh, in the Amazon, it's an Amazonian city, achieved what people were talking of as herd immunity uh, sometime in the middle of last year. So they tested people in Manaus, which had a huge uh, debilitating wave of uh, COVID infections. And they found that between 50 and 75% of people in Manaus had antibodies to COVID by the third quarter of last year. And that should have been good news, right? Because according to conventional wisdom, herd immunity means that then you're safe from any future uh, threats of uh, infection and it's been contained, done, dusted. Except what happened in Manaus was that the city was swept by a resurgent wave of uh, coronavirus infections uh, starting in November of last year, continuing to today. And all of those infections were of a mutant variant, uh, which is now called the Brazilian variant, which could overcome the uh, supposed immunity that the original coronavirus antibodies were supposed to provide. The, The lesson here is, I think, that Without vaccinations happening equitably and as much and as fast as possible, vaccine nationalism, which is presumably something that governments in the UK and US are doing to protect their own people best, is actually not the way to protect people best. Meaning that this is, and I think it's hard for people to understand this sometimes, you know, outside, because it it is complicated to imagine why achieving 100% vaccinations in the United Kingdom is actually not the best way of protecting the UK. And the reason is that to the extent that people everywhere else in the world or anywhere else in the world are left unvaccinated, there is the potential for these kinds of monster uh, variants to render the vaccinations either less effective or even useless. There are already vaccines that don't work against certain variants. So the AstraZeneca vaccine India sent across a million doses to South Africa to inoculate its healthcare workers, which went by a time that there was a new South African variant that had affected 95% of all people who had COVID in South Africa, against which the AstraZeneca vaccine just did not work well enough for them to use it. And so this is a potential scenario that could repeat itself in many countries, including rich countries. And the very worst thing you'd want to happen in a rich country is to have to be revaccinated or have this incredible expensive and exhaustive effort to roll out vaccines invalidated in some way uh, and rendered uh, uh, useless. And so the idea that no one is safe until everyone is safe actually takes on a meaning that's that's more uh, pragmatically explainable than uh, it did at the beginning of this pandemic. And I think that's something that is is really important. Now, in terms of the pharmaceutical industry's grip, I think that this exact problem that unless everybody is vaccinated at a rapid rate, at a high scale, that the coronavirus is not necessarily going to be contained even in the richest countries on earth, I think is a very good reason to finally have rich country governments step in and stamp on the toes of the pharmaceutical companies who actually have their boots on their necks, right? They just don't realize it. I mean, so that was a 
ghastly metaphor because I mixed at least three different ones. But the the truth is that the 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 thing that surprised me most is how Western governments, even in the face of short supplies in their own countries, a lack of access to these vaccines in the in the European Union in Canada, still see the need to defend pharmaceutical companies who are actually strangling them. And that's just absolutely shocking because I do wonder what kind of juju or, you know, magic there is in this industry that allows people who are literally dying because of them to continue to support the the policies that they have that enable those pharmaceutical companies um, to kill them. Preparing for this interview, I found that according to one study, drug makers uh, gave a total of $4.7 billion in campaign and lobbying contributions between 1999 and 2018. So that kind I think of that does really kind of help, doesn't you it? Know, in other words, they, yeah, they take pub- public money. They take public money, as we've laid out, to develop their drugs. Um, and then they use the profits that they make from that public money to, to bribe public officials. So they, they have, it's all very sweet. It's a sweet deal. It's, it's win-win. Um, you know, the, I think that the TRIPS waiver debate, I, where, wherever it goes, whether it's successful or not, I think is, is really remarkable because what's happening is that you have all of these new sort of blocks that are forming, like all developing countries, for instance, unanimous in their support for the proposal. And that's something that was unthinkable about 10 or even 15 years ago. There were just huge fissures and splits. So I think that there's a new kind of solidarity among the oppressed that is emerging out of this TRIPS waiver debate and around the the uh, the fact of vaccine apartheid, which I think can only be useful. And I think if there are new formations that come out of that, whether it's BRICS or, you know, a set of countries who have the will and the determination to take their future into their own hands and then just make that work, you know, there are remarkable things that could come out of that, right? Which which I think could be really incredible and beautiful. The The very last thing, actually, which leads to the Russian and Chinese vaccines is that uh, it's taken the world about 20 years now to discover that you can have quality drugs, copies of drugs that are made in India, that are then sold in Europe, in the United States. You know, you consume our drugs now. Um, it's not just us. It's many of the richest countries in the world who get these generic drugs and depend on them in many ways. So it's not just poor countries who depend on generic drugs and vaccines from India, but it's actually rich countries as well. And now that the world has got used to that, I think that there is a second thing that the world has got to get used to, which is that you can have good science and original vaccines that work against the coronavirus that come uh, out of places that are not in the West. So not every vaccine has to be developed in the United Kingdom or in the United States or in Europe. And Russia and China are leading that way. Um, They're unfortunately hobbled by an infrastructure that really does privilege Uh, Western vaccines. So the WHO does them no favors. It takes very long to assess them. It it has all the suspicions of them that, you know, every, you know, reader of the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times or even the New York Times sometimes might have. Uh, Most of them unfounded, despite the fact that every middle-income country from Brazil to Turkey to the United Arab Emirates to Hungary to Indonesia is using these vaccines despite the fact that they've tested them extensively, trialed them, found them to be useful, put that data out, and are now you know, sending them out by the millions into their uh, citizens' bodies, they have some hurdles of credibility to overcome, which are really the hurdles of prejudice. But I think that to the extent that the center can shift and we can see, you know, there are now vaccines in development in India, in Thailand, 
in Cuba, in Iran. Uh, so to the extent that the center of scientific innovation can shift and just spread out around the world and be a little more equitable, I think that actually in itself presents another kind of solution, which is just the solution of more competition from more interesting players who come in, you know, who are not, again, you know, it's not like just because a company is located in Russia or China or India that it's sort of, you know, kumbaya. I mean, these are companies still that want to make money and so on. But they just make the pie larger. They provide a uh, they provide competition to this clutch of small handful of small companies with headquarters in New Jersey and Basel and London, and that that's a really good thing. And we do have leverage over these companies. I mean, not as much as we would like, but there was a recent example. I you know I want to end end on this. Maybe if you could end with a story, you know, where where a drug company has had to step back. So recently, Gilead had to. It's seeking. It was seeking orphan drug status for remdesivir, which is was thought to maybe provide some form of treatment for coronavirus. But essentially, they were trying to grab <laughs> grab access to this medicine or grab control over this medicine, and then public outcry caused them to abandon that path. I mean, so they public pressure and organizing uh, does work, but maybe end with a story of a of a campaign that that gives you some optimism or gives the listeners some strategic insight to take as we move into this post-pandemic world. Um, I have two uh, uh, examples of things that have worked really well. Um, the first is protests and uh, a buildup of outrage, of just sheer citizen outrage that can turn access to medicines into an actual live electoral issue. That happened in South Africa, that happened to a certain extent in India. And what it did is that it allowed the governments of these countries to show that outrage and say, my hands are tight. I cannot agree to this ridiculous proposal that you, the you know, the US or the EU or whoever is trying to force me to sign. That that outrage is a complex one. I mean it's hard to, as I said, this is such a technical issue Though at, at its heart, it's the simplest issue in the world, right? I mean, this is control of our bodies and our lives, our right to exist in some way. And that, when it's turned into an issue that actually matters, even to poor countries, it has astonishingly useful consequences in what these countries then do to solve that problem. Because a lot of poor countries as well, by the way, I think like a lot of this debate is around, you know, poor countries being oppressed by rich countries, etc. But actually, they've had a lot of power in their hands for a long time. All they require is a little bit of courage to actually use the power that they have. And that courage typically comes from a kind of outrage that cannot be put back into the bottle. And I think that sort of popular organizing is really important. And it's why, you know, any kind of measure that's worked has worked, whether it's in South Africa or, you know, the United Kingdom in the run up to the British elections, where the campaigners I worked with turned the issue of children dying because they didn't have access to this drug uh, that even the richest health system in the world couldn't buy, became such a big issue that the British media, which is basically almost universally right wing, was campaigning for this issue on their front pages. You know, short of calling for the revolution, they were all in because it was such a skillfully communicated issue that engaged so many people that it became something that nobody could ignore. Um, and so I think that's the first thing. I think in rich countries, one of the, the, the most important ways is to take advantage of failures because I think that the kinds of things that have worked 
for poor countries is when rich countries have had the same problem and have noticed that and then tried to fix it. Uh, and what I mean by that is that in some ways, you know, the, the problem with coronavirus vaccines that vaccine manufacturers are responding to, it's not just a lack of access in the third world, but it's all the problems that are being experienced in Canada and in Europe, etc. You know, those are the things that really hurt the pharmaceutical industry, you know, and to the extent that the failures of access to medicines for vaccines in the pandemic or otherwise are, are turned into real problems that are articulated by enough people that, you know, Congresses and houses and, you know, parliaments have to actually acknowledge them would work. The problem with the pandemic and doing that here is that it's compounded by the fact that while countries are now lamenting a shortage of supply or no supply, they were also tom-tomming the brilliant scientific innovation, which is justified to a certain extent, that they helped create just a few months ago when these vaccines were just about coming to market. So I think that the the I, I would imagine that, you know, at the moment, the popular mood is very much on the side of Pfizer and Moderna. I mean, these are companies that have saved the United States, presumably, and portions of Europe and other rich countries in the world. And that is how the message was communicated, in part because governments wanted to take credit for these miracles and celebrate their work in the guise of celebrating the science and what these companies did for them. So I think that makes it harder now to go back and attack them for actually not making enough of their vaccine and for being far too greedy and and keeping uh, uh, much more control over the vaccine than is morally justified in this pandemic. Uh, but I think it makes it harder, but it's possible. I think that there are movements towards that. But to the extent that organizing around this works in a first world country with middle class and working class white people, that has a tremendous global effect that is really incomparable in terms of its utility. Thank you for that. Thank you for this insightful interview. Um, I've learned so much talking to you, Achal. Thanks for joining me on The Dig. Thank you, Astra. Achal Prabala has been a public health activist for 18 years, starting in South Africa, where he worked for the country's largest trade union federation. He now lives in India and runs the Access IBSA project, which campaigns for access to medicines in India, Brazil, and South Africa. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the rent of land is established as a result of the struggle between tenant and landlord, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. Same on Facebook. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling people you know about the show, why you listen to it, why you like it, why they should too, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. 
even a few bucks is huge.